All right, let's, um, let's look into 1 Corinthians this morning. Uh, Pastor Brian, uh, last week, uh, went through the first part of chapter 2 and was speaking about uh, the contrast between um, contemporary orators of that time and Paul refuted the wisdom that was presented by these Corinthian orators and encouraged them to trust in the power of God. And he also demonstrated that uh, he was much different from such speakers, being weak and sometimes not necessarily coming in the power of persuasive speech, kind of like how I feel this morning. Um, But now Paul, in the second part of chapter 2, is going to pick on a word that was loved by the Corinthians and the orators of that day, and it's called wisdom, but he uses this word to point the Corinthians to God. So why don't we just go ahead and read that chapter, let's go ahead and go to the slides there. We've got two slides up, and does anybody need a Bible? If you do, we've got people that'll hand them to you, just go ahead and raise your hands. We have our guys ready with the Bibles. Nobody's raising their hands, so we're good. Oh, one hand. Anybody? Yeah, just one right over here. That's great. Thank you. So this is uh, 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 16. I tried doing this first service, and that's a little far away, so I'll turn my back on you. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it's not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age, who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would have not have crucified the Lord of glory. But, as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have not received, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And so we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things or discerns all things, but he himself is discerned or judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ? Uh, Join me with prayer, would you please? Ah, Lord, we um, are grateful to come together to worship you and honor you, sing to you, and you know, sometimes we just recognize our need more than others. And this morning, we really need the power of your Spirit to work within us through what you've spoken, and that will change us and um, drive us closer to you 
and also just free and cleanse us as well. We love you. Thank you for the privilege of um, freely being able to gather together like this. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen. One thing Paul uses in the book of Corinthians is a style of writing called contrast. And he uses it really effectively in the scriptures we've just read here that we're going to cover. So I want to look at some contrast here uh, on this slide. And in the passage we read, there's three main areas. Uh, one being wisdom, whether it's God's or this age, this timeline. Spirit, whether the Holy Spirit or the spirit of the world. And the third contrast he used is human beings, spiritual or natural. So I'm going to reread these uh, wisdom passages first. As Paul was saying that we would not rest in um, powerful messages of wisdom that the world gives, but he says, I want your faith to rest on God's power, not on men's wisdom. But he says, we do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we speak God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Uh, let's go to the next slide. So, understanding where Paul is coming from here and how he's being inspired by God, one understanding of wisdom, and this is just pretty simplistic, but I, I think it brings across some points here. Wisdom is defined as insight that leads to an action or a way of life. Paul speaks about wisdom of the rulers of this age. Now, that word age meaning a cycle of time, especially the present age which we live in, contrasted with the future age to come, the kingdom age. And it's one of a series of ages stretching to infinity, he says, is passing away. Secondly, he's bringing up the point here of God's wisdom that was hidden before, but now fully revealed in Jesus through his crucifixion and resurrection. And that this was planned and determined even before the ages, our normal timeline we look at, uh, began for our glory. Now, when Paul uses this word mature, and this is something Pastor Brian, when he comes back next week, will uh, speak more on, so we won't spend much time. But mature was a word that the public speakers of Paul's day in Corinth used about themselves as they gathered followers or disciples around them, and then these disciples would progress into maturity as the speakers would teach them, quote, wisdom. Now, these mature people who were teachers were almost always from elite families that would go on to hold places of rulership in the colony around Corinth or in other parts of the Roman world. For Paul, however, the mature are those who hear and become disciples, not of Paul, but of Jesus Christ. Rulers of this age uh, that Paul looks at in this passage suggests that Paul had in mind the Jewish and Roman authorities responsible for Jesus' death. Corinth, that was the seat of the provincial governor of Achaia at the time, was one of those centers for the rule in the Roman world. 
And so, like I said, uh, Pastor Brian will just draw up this more, so I won't spend much time. But as Paul is talking here about the rulers of this age coming to nothing, um, there's some dispute in commentaries whether he's speaking of uh, rulers, men and or women, or is he speaking of demonic powers that are behind the governmental authorities. And you can go either way on this. I'm not going to spend much time on it. But the truth of the matter is, is that uh, they are really coming to nothing. They're doomed to pass away. And Paul is talking about an age and a timeline, the temporary present timeline we're in, the wisdom of this world is going to pass away. Now, he's talking about had they known about the true wisdom that God reveals, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. Now, of course, the, the Roman uh, governor, Pontius Pilate, and the educated Jewish elite had put Jesus to death. In spite of their wisdom, they didn't recognize this Lord of glory. In other words, Paul is simply saying, this Jesus was not just a mere man, but he was the Lord of glory, speaking of God above. And the fact that God would come in human flesh and walk among his creation was an absolute mind-blowing concept for that time. And this is what Paul is talking about here. And that had they simply recognized this, they never would have put him to death. So Paul is demonstrating that members of the Corinthian church who wished to follow this type of wisdom recommended by their secular society are no different from those who crucified this Messiah, Jesus. Paul is training them to understand that wise Corinthian Christians will not be mere blind followers of the rulers of this age. A couple of passages here that um, Paul wants to uh, help us understand are, are written, let's see, right here in Colossians, which is another book he wrote later to a group of Christians in the city of Colossae. And he's talking to the believers and wanting them to be encouraged. So I'm just going to pick this up. He says that your hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is in Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This is a radical concept. We're not looking at mere men, their teaching. He's saying, look to this Lord of glory in whom God has designed would hold all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In fact, Paul talks about this hidden mystery and the fact that this is, was before hidden, but now, he says later on in these verses, is fully revealed in this time, in Jesus, in his crucifixion, and in his resurrection. So when we think of hidden mysteries in that time, as in this time, you have certain occultic practices or hidden secret societies where only the initiated, only those that are, have learned and grown and, and all of a sudden have this boom, wisdom and knowledge that nobody else knows. But that's not God's plan. 
God says, no, I want to reveal this to the whole world, but especially to my people that hear the message of Jesus and become his disciples. I want them to know the depths and the deep things in this mystery of knowledge and wisdom. And so God is, oh, pouring it out in a powerful way here. Oops, I went too far here. Sorry about that. So, Let's move on to this next section. Oh, I'm sorry. This is important too. Matthew 11:25. Jesus was talking about his disciples who had come to follow him. And one of the things that was constantly confounding is, why would you want four or five fishermen, a radical political figure, um, tax gatherers, why would you want them to be your disciples? These were the slum. This was the lower end. But look at what Jesus says about this. Instead of wise, powerful, influential people, Jesus says to the Father, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them unto little children. This is a theme that Jesus talked about often. He said, look, unless you become like a little child, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, there's always a balance between being childish and becoming like a child, right? But this is a secret mystery that's revealed to people who are maybe not so powerful, maybe not so rich. Not that God has anything against you being rich or having a place of authority and governing, but really, those men and women usually are not open and receptive to the simplistic Jesus, and yet very sublime and very powerful. So let's go ahead and go to the next slide here, which is where Paul is contrasting spirit, and I'll read these verses again about this. Paul says, No eye has seen, nor ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed it to us by his spirit. Now, the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given to us. This is what we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. So, as we look at this, this contrast that Paul is talking about, let's expand on it. Paul is saying here that God reveals wisdom, knows us as a people, and by searching, the Holy Spirit knows the things of God. And that through receiving him, we know that God, what God gives us freely to us and taught by him in spiritual realities. And finally, the spirit of the world, meaning human society organized and functioning without God, teaches that we're in control. We can have whatever we see or want. That's what Paul's contrasting here. First of all, Paul, in talking about what the Spirit has revealed to us, he talks about the deep things of God. Now, again, this would be a term that the Corinthians would understand. 
Because, again, the orators of that time would talk about deep mysteries and coming into this. But, again, God is saying, I want you all to know these deep things of myself. And the Spirit searches them out and then reveals them to us. He talks about us as being merely human beings, that our spirit searches out the deep things of us. In fact, Proverbs, um, the book of Proverbs, God talks about that he takes our spirit that's been reborn and rebirthed and uses it like a lamp to search the deepest parts of us so that we might know ourselves and understand what is really in us. Now, that can be a bit intimidating. It can be maybe a fearful thing to hear that. But again, we're talking about Jesus. What was he like? Did he just expose people so that they might be shamed and guilt-ridden? No, he really did that only to religious leaders. But to his disciples, he said, I'm gathering you in to myself. I want you to know the love of the Father. I want you to know what it is that I can be your shepherd. So when we understand that God is willing to take our spirit and to search us out so that we might know what's in us, it's for our good. In fact, he talks about the fact that he wants us to understand what God gives us freely. No cost, no obligation, except that we're disciples, that we die to ourselves. Now, that's a big obligation. But it's not something that you had to pay money to get. God wants us to freely understand all that he's able to do. And finally, Paul talks about um, the spirit, not, we have not received the spirit of the world. Now, one of the things here in America, especially that I've found over the years, is that sometimes there gets to be this adversarial position that we as the church takes in regards to the big bad world. And I want to kind of diffuse some of that. Because there's a lot of vitriolic language that comes out. There's a lot of sermons that are proclaimed about how the world is evil and you need to stay away from it. And it's defined by things like, you know, uh, don't drink, don't chew, or go with girls who do. Don't go to movies. You know, well, maybe some of you women chew. I don't know. But the point is, is that, you know, there's a definition. Don't do this. Don't touch this. But Paul, later on in Colossians, talks about that that is just mere religiousness. What Paul is defining here is really important. Again, like that slide. The spirit of this world teaches us that we're in control. We can have whatever we see or want. That is what Paul is referring to here. When we look at the world around us, there is so much incredible things that God has created that's marvelous. There's so much of his wisdom and knowledge. For instance, in the, in the arts or in medicine, how many strives have we made in medicine where we have cures, that's God-given. Let's say we're talking about even the simplicity of watching a football game and enjoying that with friends or going out to eat or going on a hike or whatever that may be. That is God-given. So again, defining what Paul is talking about is, is really understanding that God does not hate this world. He hates a world system that is in rebellion to him. That's what's important. We've got to remember, what does John 3.16 say? Right. If we, if we miss this, 
then we become very isolated, we become very centric about our organization, or we become very exclusive, and we drive away people. Let's go to the next slide here. Let's go to the next slide, since that's, this is pertinent to the point here. In John's first letter that he wrote, he defines what, he's ta- what Paul is talking about this in some more measurable ways. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So what is he saying? What are we not to love and go after? The desires, strong desires of the flesh, the strong desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. He says it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. That we need to understand when we read Scripture and have it defined by God and not by our cultural understanding. Does that make sense? Hopefully that's helpful for you. Let's go to the next slide. All right, the final section here is for human beings and the contrast that Paul says this here. Okay, let me find that, and I'll read that again. So in Paul talking about the expression of the Spirit, he goes to this last contrast in verse 14. He says, The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. But the spiritual man makes judgments or discernments, and I'll talk about that in a minute, about all things, but he himself is not subject to any man's judgment. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. One thing, depending on the translation you're reading, he uses this in this section of Scripture a lot about man. And sometimes in our gender sensitivity in this life, we can misunderstand a verse that somehow Paul is a male misogynist. But that is not at all what Paul is talking about here. When Paul uses the the word man, he is referring to humankind because he understands from the truths of God that God's viewpoint, Adam was the first man created. And out of him, all humankind followed in his image. And so when this term is used throughout Scripture, we need to see it It means he's speaking of humankind. So when Paul speaks of a spiritual person here in verse 13 and 15, he's not speaking about some class of people who are in closer touch with their inner selves. When you hear the word spiritual today, it can mean a lot of things, but it's not that. For example, if today you go on Internet forums where people are searching for love, we might see something like this on a dating site. Single, intelligent, focused, spiritual man seeks a young and energetic woman. I'm not going to ask for a raise of hands if you've seen that because that would indicate some other things. Don't want to expose you, okay? Spiritual in this context has little or nothing to do with whether that person has faith in Christ. Perhaps, really, the man is simply trying to portray himself as a deep and sensitive man in order to impress a woman. So if you're going to use language like that, cut out the word spiritual and just go with what you got. 
you single men and women. Okay? Paul's letters, in his letters, when he uses the term spiritual, whether spiritual gifts, spiritual people, spiritual understanding, they all denote having to do with the Holy Spirit of God. Again, defining terms is what God does in his word. It helps us understand. And then Paul uses a phrase here where he says, um, let me go to that real quick. He says, the spiritual man makes judgment about all things, but he himself is not subject to any man's judgment. And again, here's something that's really important. First of all, the word here for judgment in the Greek construction is really meaning discerning or apprising or appraising something correctly. Paul is not saying, look, someone who is a, quote, spiritual person, if they do something wrong, they're off the hook. I mean, we know throughout our years how many men and women and, and, and children have been hurt by this hiding of the faults of the church and wicked men and women who have taken advantage in terrible ways. And if any of you are here and have had that happen to you, I'm just so sorry. It's just so painful and it's so wrong. What Paul is saying here is that the spiritual person is able to um, discern spiritual things. He's able to hear the Spirit of God speaking. He's able to understand these mysteries that are freely given. But he's also saying that to be truly discerned by a natural person who is not familiar with the Spirit of God or the revelations of God and of Jesus they're not able to really understand motivations. That's really all Paul is saying here. So again, this is not a free will thing. Or if you're a Christian, you're off the hook in your behavior. There's no problem with it. I think to understand some things here about what Paul is teaching, about the difference between a natural human being and a spiritual human being, I think it would be good to reread something that's pretty familiar with us, and that's in John 3. And so if you've got a Bible there, you can turn to it. I'm not going to have it up on the screen. just want you, if you don't have a Bible or if you don't have your smartphone open or whatever you're using, just go ahead and listen, because this is where Jesus is speaking to a ruler, again, rulers of this age, a ruler of Pharisees, which was a very important, powerful body uh, and had religious rulership over the people of Israel at that time. John 3, starting with verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you're doing if God were not with him. Sounds like a just nice opening statement, doesn't it? Giving him compliments. We think you're from God. And Jesus just totally, whoop! Jesus declares, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again or born from above. Nicodemus heard the record scratch. Again, that's an old terminology. Just whoop! Fingers across the, the chalkboard. How can a man be born when he's old? 
Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of water and spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh. Natural is what he's trying to say here. But the spirit gives birth to the spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying. You must be born again or from above. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. This is, again, a natural person discerning what the Holy Spirit's doing in the life of another. Can't see it. And Nicodemus is just blown mind. I, I don't understand this. And, and Jesus, being so ironic, says... You're a teacher of Israel, and you don't understand these things? You're supposed to know what God's doing, and you're totally clueless, is what Jesus is basically saying. I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know. We testify to what we've seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you about earthly things, and you don't believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? See how Jesus defines, and Paul extrapolates as he's teaching this. This is all from the fact that Jesus holds all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, and he's speaking from a relational point of view of coming from the Father, coming from heaven, being born as a baby, growing up as a man, and then being revealed to the world as God the Son, and yet the man who would become the one who dies on a cross and rises from the dead. As we finish up this, and if, if some of you here have, you know, maybe you're new to this or something that's just very foreign to you, Jesus said this, I have not come into the world to condemn, but to save those that were lost. Now, again, that term for lost simply means anyone that simply is in control of their own life or thinks they are and is basically driven by natural instincts. Jesus is inviting them and inviting us to come to be born again. And this is an ongoing process of being refreshed and renewed by the Spirit as believers, as disciples of his. But in the last verses here in 1 Corinthians 2, Paul is again quoting from the Old Testament, which was a time of season where the believers didn't have the indwelling spirit. The Holy Spirit at that time, the Spirit of God, would visit certain individuals or be on kings and priests or prophets. But the idea that everyone could receive the Spirit of God and have them indwelling, in fact, uh, Later on in Corinthians, Paul will talk about the fact that we, have the, we are the temple of the living God. Again, a mind-blowing concept. And yet, you who are sitting here who have received Christ, the very God who holds the universe in his hands, has desired to dwell within you through his Holy Spirit. Again, absolutely mind-blowing to me. But he says, 
I, for who has known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But Paul finishes this chapter by saying, but we have the mind of Christ. Can I go back to that slide? If I can. Sorry, I messed you up here, didn't I? No, all the way at the end. Yep, right there. Up, nope. One more. All right, anyway. Like I said, I'm tired, five and a half hours, trusting in the power of God and his word here. (laughs) Paul is talking about the mind of Christ. And again, we could make this esoteric, deep mystery, but really what it is is having his perspectives, Jesus' perspectives. What are Christ's priorities? What is his heart? We have that dwelling within us because it's the spirit of Jesus. In fact, uh, Paul in Philippians talks about how the Son of God came to earth. He put aside the mantle of being God the Son and became a man and humbled himself even to the death of the cross. He was willing to submit to the Father and take part in our humanity and serve us in the most demonstrable way of showing God's love by dying a criminal's death and yet raised to glory because of his obedience to the Father and who he was. When we look at this passage talking about the things that God has given to us in the revelation of the Spirit, that it's for our glory, wow, what does that mean for you and I? Well, first of all, that word glory can mean a heavy weight. Think of you ladies you know, huddling and cuddling under a deep, heavy blanket. Or you guys, I'm not going to use that same terminology, it doesn't fit very well. But you guys, when you're tackled and you have 500 pounds of weight on you because you've just been tackled, like the 49ers dominated yesterday in Minnesota. <laughs> Thank God. The weight, the fact that God himself is on you and in you, there's a weightiness to that. That he has basically lifted us up from a place of of great despair, great sorrow, great pain, great shame, maybe great guilt. And he's elevated us up to be seated with him in heavenly places, to have this place of honor being called sons and daughters of God. And there's light. It's not darkness, but the light of Christ shining on our hearts and minds. And, and we're able to see clearly, maybe for the first time in our life, perspective of what God has for us and how he plans for us and planned for us way before the ages began. And how do you fit into his plans and his purposes? What is your future? Those are the deep things of God that God wants to reveal and freely show you and for you to take in. So just in finishing, I just want to ask a few questions. I want you to think about this. You can write it down. You can put it on your phone. But where, where are we at? As we read these passages and as the truths of God are being unveiled to us, where are we at? How deep do we want to know this God who says these things? How deep do you want to go? There are no limitations. You may think you have limitations because of your status, financially, 
or work or whatever you may look at. There are no limitations. You may be going through the worst time of your life, but God wants to reveal himself to you so deeply. You may be on the, the mountaintop. Everything is going well. God still wants you to know the depths of him in comparison to that high place. Are we growing in the knowledge of what he's freely given us? Are we pursuing that? Are we rich in the things of God? Or are we just mainly merely skating by and not understanding how poor we might be in following the wisdom of this age and the rulers of this timeline? To be transparent, I have to examine myself often during the week and ask myself these same questions. Because I need to be continually filled with the Spirit of God. I need to have his perspective, his wisdom, his understanding. I need to walk in that and not walk as to my former way of life. So let's go ahead and stand. Let's have the band come on up. And in thinking about these things, we're going we're gonna to take, again, communion. It's not something we just do as a habit. We do communion as a reaffirmation of what Jesus has done for us. But we're also reaffirming to God that, Jesus, you are my very food. You're my very drink. You are the essence of my life. And it all, it's all sourced from you. So we have, we'll have some people come up and serve communion right now to do that. Um, if you want to come up and partake, or we have some things in the back, and all, or on the sides, I should say, if you, if you don't want to come up. But also, if, if there are any needs, we have people that will be willing to pray for you. We'll have some of our, we've got some people off to the side here, or off in front of the cross, maybe some of our Sunday shepherds can come on up for prayer. Whatever your needs are, the Holy Spirit, God, wants to come and meet those. Maybe you're physically ill. Maybe you're going through a rough time. Being able to receive from God is why we take the time to do that this morning as we sing and as we worship. God is rich, and he wants to bestow his riches upon you, both of grace, of healing, of joy, and peace. So come and receive, and let's worship, and then we'll finish up.